Amen. Good morning. If you got a worksheet um, there, you should. Uh, uh, we're on lesson four. Uh, and sometimes in our history study, it's going to be difficult to decide what it is we can and can't talk about. We have to be a little selective in our, in our uh, decisions because we obviously with 2,000 years of church history, it's going to be hard to um, cover everything. But some of these important areas that we're going to spend a little bit more time on, and, and the area that we're on today is really known as the patristic period or the per period that comes right after the age of the apostles. Uh, so the people that we're going to talk about it this week and next are probably people who knew apostles, uh, were disciples of the apostles. It's the reason it's called the patristic period is not because these were, or they're known as the apostolic fathers, is not that they were fathers of the apostles, but rather they were, they were disciples of the apostles. And so it's known as the patristic period. It's known as the age of Catholic Christianity. Um, and it's, it's marked by a couple of things. It's marked by a severe persecution, and it's marked by a radical defense of the faith from people who were known as apologists uh, who, were, who were forced to rise up and, and write and speak defenses against those who were uh, starting to share heresy and doctrines that you're going to recognize that are even propagated today. At the start here, we have a quote from Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to the Romans. This is going to be a fascinating, uh, a fascinating look at his life later in the class, but here he begins with a quote, I declare to all the churches and I bid all men know that of my own free will I die for God, unless you hinder me. I exhort you that you note an unseizable kindness to me. Let me be given to the wild beasts, for through them I can attain to God. Now that quote will make more sense when I give you the context of it a little bit later. Let's talk first, though, about the early spread of the gospel. And again, I encourage you to ask questions, interact, discuss. If we have to spread the lesson out for another week, that'll be fine. But uh, why is it that Christianity spreads so quickly? Obviously, we can default to the, well, God is sovereign and the gospel has power. We know that, right? We know that the only way the gospel ever enters into a heart of man is because the word and the spirit connect in a way that man cannot uh, manipulate or cajole. We cannot caress the gospel into someone's heart and so we, we understand that that's a given okay that's understand that's a given we know that the early spread of the gospel went out because the power of the gospel was going forth in such a radical way but we also know that god uses men and women and their motives and their works to accomplish things so in your mind i have four things listed in your mind think about this for just a second what would be some factors that would lead to the quick spread of the gospel just think about it for a second there was a lot of antagonism towards the gospel this quote is insane isn't it far from us say the christians be uh, a man possessed of any culture of wisdom or judgment their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people how's that make you feel uh idiots slaves poor women and children these are the only one they managed to turn into believers this is what uh, critics of Christianity felt. They felt like it was just the stupid, uh, the slaves, children. It certainly wasn't the mighty and keen and knowledgeable people of the day that gave themselves to that. And that fits right with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, not many wise are called. It's the foolish that are called. The preaching of the gospel is to them that are perishing foolishness. That's what Celsus here, you know, we could make fun of him for his dumb name, right? 
Uh, but here, here he is picking on, uh, and this was primarily true. This was, this what, what he was saying was not, not that people were stupid or idiots, but it was for the, the gospel really did spread in poor cultures. It really did spread among slaves. Uh, and so Christianity at this point had a universal vision for the church. It's known as the small c Catholic church. In fact, Ignatius was one of the first ones to use that term, Catholic Church, in one of the letters that he wrote on his way to his persecution when he said, uh, if Jesus is there, then there be the Catholic Church, meaning the universal church. They wanted the church to spread in the universal sense. In fact, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, there's a line that says, and people change it because they're uncomfortable with it, it says, we believe in one holy Catholic Church. And, of course, that meant we believe in one holy universal church. And some people change that, and they say holy universal church now because they don't like to say the word Catholic because they immediately connect it with the Church of Rome. Now we, I want you to understand that's not what we always mean. Now, they took on that term for their own denomination, their own sect or cult, but Christianity in those first few years was, uh, a Catholic, had a Catholic vision. And this was because uh, this was the plan of Christ and was, this was the work of Paul that led to this. Okay? So it began to spread in a Catholic sense, in a universal way. It spread all the way into Spain. It spread deep into North Africa. Uh, a, city in, a city of Carthage was known as a very uh, Christianized city. Uh, it spread all the way over to India. So what caused this? Uh, obviously, again, we're, we're saying and we're agreeing that it is the gospel's power, but what human factors may have also led to the early spread of the gospel? Okay. The persecution of the church. People are being killed, so they want to join that club? Explain a little bit. <laughs> okay, let me clarify that it, okay, yeah, so, so you're saying the persecution led to people scattering and taking the gospel with them to those different places. Sure. Is there another aspect of persecution, though, that may have, because I kind of joked, you know, well, people are dying, you want to be quick to join that group. But in a sense, it really was. People thought, well, if there is this commitment, maybe there is something to this. Um, quite possible. That's one of the four. We'll, we'll list them all in, in an order in just a second. Anyone else have a thought? What, what spread? Why, why is this so quick? Okay, that's kind of the same as what Mr. Gillespie just said, but I'm talking more, Annie, about not just, not just spread geographically. Why did so many people adhere to the doctrine of Christianity so quickly? And they were. I mean, lots of people were giving themselves to Christianity right away. Okay. Let's, let's say that as reason number one, Tony. You picked off reason number one, so we'll do that. It's the conviction that these events really did happen. They believed it so sincerely, and maybe it was because they obviously witnessed it firsthand, but, but even the patristic fathers or the apostolic fathers, people like Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement of Rome and, and uh, some of these other bishops and pastors that are known to us through history, they didn't witness, perhaps, the resurrected Christ, but they believe so strongly in it. Why is it that you have embraced the gospel? Because you believe the tomb is empty, right? Does anybody believe that? 
You believe the tomb is empty, right? Of course you do, and that's why you're here, to worship that risen Christ. That's the same thing. People, people became gripped with this conviction that this stuff was true. Good one. What else, do we, what else we got? We've got persecution, which is one of the four, so it means we've got two of the four. Why else would this be the case? And it's, it's really the same reasons the gospel spreads today. What would be another reason? What was another reason you embraced the gospel? What was... Okay, that again fits into the geographical spread, but why did those people who missionaries went to receive it? What? Yeah, what kind of need? Yeah, this met a need in man's heart. For what? Peace, forgiveness, joy. These people went to their deaths with joy and forgiveness. They, this, this met a need. I mean, we talked about the different types of philosophies at the time. Stoicism, right? The idea of, you just grin and bear it. You just endure whatever comes and you take it like a man and this kind of attitude. And, and here, here the, it's not just a grin and bear it attitude for these people who are enduring punishment. They're, they're encouraging the wild beasts to be let out of their cages and attack them. And they're, they're having joy and peace. That, and that's again why you accepted it. You were looking for forgiveness. You were looking for peace. You were looking for joy and you found it alone in Christ. Boom, you guys got three of the answers. I, I gave you a quote under letter C to give you the answer for letter C. Let's look at that and maybe it'll come to you. This is what Emperor Julian, who was a very antagonistic towards the Christians late in the 4th century when he was the emperor. Atheism, which is what was the Christian faith, they, believe, they called Christians atheists because they won't worship the gods. That seems strange, but that was what they, what, what they referred to Christians as. So atheism, meaning the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, he's talking about believers, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. And the example specifically of, of what? Yeah, the Christian love expressed in the meeting of needs expressed by Christian love. Exactly. They will know you are my followers by your love for one another. Uh, Tertullian, was it Tertullian was the one who said uh, the pagans told him he was a lawyer in North Africa, a Christian lawyer in North Africa in the uh, in this period of time, said the pagans would come to him and said, see how these Christians love each other. And one of the ways that love was specifically expressed was that Christians cared for the dead. They took care of the bodies of the dead. It's a curious thing. I don't know what the pagans uh, would do with their dead, but the Christians cared for them during that time, meeting their need in Christian love. Derek already mentioned that the fourth reason was the persecution, which is what we're going to talk about here this morning quite extensively. Okay? So this was how this gospel spread so quickly. And as it was spreading, some accusations began to arise against believers. Now, a lot of, a lot of things to write down, and I hope you just don't write the words that come up on the screen because there's things, there's things here that I think will be very interesting. There, there's what we ca would call popular criticism, number one, uh, letter A, a section, uh, so five reasons about like popular reasons, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Then political reasons. Uh, there'd be some political criticism, and then there's some philosophical criticism, like, 
Philosophical criticism would mean their, their ideas are wrong, their beliefs are wrong. Political criticism would mean, well, they're, they're ab ab abrasive with our state and government. And then popular reasons would just be like uh, personal or, um, or social type reasons. So let's walk through some of these. Uh, these, okay, so we say, well, why did the gospel spread so quickly? Now we're asking the question, why, why so much persecution? Why so much hate for these people who only love us? Why do we hate them so much? Okay, So these, what are there? 5, 10, 16 different reasons why Christians were hated. And let's see how many of them still fit us. Why, why Christians are hated even today. So popular criticism. And, and I'd give time to list the answers, but I'd rather uh, have you discuss after we see the answers. Okay, The first is they were accused of antisocial behavior. <laughs> antisocial behavior. What do we mean by this? What, what do you think we mean by this? They were accused of antisocial behavior. Okay, give us some practical things, though. What, what would be practical? That's right, but let's... Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 more than just I, I think in, in the underneath the political criticism, we're going to see more of the idea that they wouldn't worship the gods. This is more of a social situation. OK, and it's even a little deeper than that. That's real good, but it's a little deeper than that. The term for that's used in the Bible for Christians is the word hagias. That that's just the word saint. The word just means set apart really means just different or unique. So what, what people looked at Christians like, they're weird. They're different. They don't. Go ahead, Matt. And, and it, wouldn't, it wouldn't, yeah, it, it's that type of thing. Um, they, they, the Sabbath, as Annie mentioned, was different. Their, their, their uh, worship looks different. Their, um, their attitudes towards activities are different. Um, it wasn't that Christians, and, and we just talked last week in church about having a judgmental spirit. It wasn't that Christians in those days were looking down their arrogant noses at people saying, well, we don't do those things. It was just the fact that they didn't do those things that made the people who did do those things feel condemned. You don't have to say anything. We don't do that sort of thing. You know, you sh we, sh we shouldn't act that way. Well, we would never. That's the judgmental spirit we're talking about. But just the fact that we don't participate in those things. For instance, the gladiator competitions where men would be brought in, slaves and prisoners, to fight to the death. This was the NFL of that day. This was the great sporting event. I imagine vendors selling food at these things. In fact, Augustine later, he lived much later, but at one of these activities, he said a friend of his refused and refused to go until finally one of his pagan friends convinced him to go. And he says, I'm going to go, but I'm going to keep my eyes closed. <laughs> and he goes there and he keeps his eyes closed. And then these people start cheering and he opens his eyes and he starts yelling with all the rest of them. But the people who wouldn't participate were looked at as nerds, losers, social outcasts. Um, as you mentioned, Tony, why would they reject all of the different gods? This made them social misfits. 
Um, you couldn't even go and eat at a pagan's home because at a pagan's home, just prior to the meal, they would offer some sort of liquid sacrifice or burn some incense to some god. They had gods for everything. And if you, you could, well, we, I'm sorry, we just can't do that. We can't eat. We can't submit ourselves to that sort of paganistic way. Um, this led to very difficult decisions, uh, even as far as uh, employment. Uh, if you were a tailor, would you make a cloak for a pagan priest? If you were a butcher, would you sell animals that you knew were going to be used for pagan sacrifices? If you were a cake baker, would you bake a cake for a gay wedding? I mean, it's, it's, is this all brand new? This was happening 2,000 years ago. How would you make those type of decisions? In fact, Tertullian, that same lawyer I mentioned, advised one of his students to not be a teacher because being a teacher would mean that he would have to teach the ancient texts of the gods. So there's these antisocial, and so all the pagans were like, well, what's the matter with us? Why are you looking down on us? Like, we're not looking, this is just the way we choose to live our life. Well, why do you, you know, just the, the act of life brings about the sense of condemnation. I mean, understand this. If you want to stay out of trouble in society, even today, the way to do that is just conform to everybody else. Just be a little bit different and unique in your thinking. And, and you're weird. You're, you, what do you mean you don't fill in the blank? for today you know you're, you're that's the way christians were looked at in those days and so they were con, they, they of course uh, one of the things we could mention for days is even back then they had dated views of sex and of marriage so antisocial. i mean that's just the first one it's one of the major ones secondly they were accused of being atheists i already mentioned this uh, people in that day couldn't imagine you going to worship without an image uh, you know, what do you mean? You, you, don't have, you don't worship an image when you go? No, we don't worship an image because we were told not to create an image of our God. Monotheism was, had no attraction for anyone. Uh, the Christians were insulting all the gods of the state. In fact, the, the people would look at the Christians who did not worship all of the gods and say, well, it's their lack of worshiping the gods that is bringing on natural disasters. Listen, again, Tertullian, I quote him a lot because a lot of his writings survived. If the Tiber floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, or if there's an earthquake or famine or pestilence, at once the cry is raised, send the Christians to the lions. Like if there's a famine, if there's an earthquake, we know the Christians are responsible because they're not worshiping the God of the earth, the God of the sky, the God of rain. If they would just worship this God and all of these gods that we have, then those gods would be appeased. It's their fault. They were blamed for these type of things. They had strange rituals. At least this is what they were accused of. You mean you're eating someone's flesh and drinking someone's blood? What are you all, cannibals? <laughs> uh, you, you talk always about the death of the son. Are you killing children? Again, this is the perception of the pagans. Can you imagine how confusing it would be even to unbelievers in our day when we tell them we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper? And, huh? I mean, maybe they understand a little bit more because the doctrine is not as new as it was in those days. Fourth, they were, as I already mentioned, they were viewed as lower-class citizens. It's only the poor and the stupid that go to those places that worship that God. And last is they were, they were accused of having incest and orgies. They had these, quote, love feasts or agape feasts which were known as, of course, the Lord's Supper or, or the breaking of bread just in, in gatherings. They greeted each other with a holy kiss 
which they soon abandoned because uh, people would start accusing them of these uh, immoral actions, gross immorality, even cannibalism. Any of those strike you? Anyone have a remark on those five? We'll go on to the, politi the political criticism next, but anyone have a thought or connect it to today or feelings? Something came to your mind even? I don't I want to just run on here. Good. Exactly the same. Yeah, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You think differently. You're you're nuts. Hey, come out and have a beer with me after work today. Well, I just I don't do that. What? Go ahead. You want to say? Yeah. Okay. Mhm. Yeah, the the accusations against believers haven't changed through the years. They're they're the same. I think the the reason we have antisocial as the number one is because they I think they would still uh, they would still claim that of us. Right, that we're social misfits, that we appear rude because we won't. Uh, what was it? What is what is the verse in the scriptures? Just coming to mind now. I can't think of the place. Maybe one of you can. Uh, they think it's strange that you don't run with them to sin. Uh, th that's just a paraphrase, but there is a they, you know they think it's strange that you don't do these type of things with them. Let's talk a little bit about the political criticism because I, I if we don't get to the persecution, it's going to be a long lesson, but we'll try. First of all, of course, their refusal to worship the gods. This was one of the supreme reasons for the Roman persecution. Uh, initially, the persecution was only Jew versus Jew. Uh, the Romans, as I'll talk about in just a minute, were content to let the Jews worship their own gods. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But over the first two or three centuries, uh, the refusal to worship the Roman gods did rise to the top as one of the reasons people were uh, persecuted. Of course, there's something known as the Pax Romana, uh, which means the peace of Rome. And it was provided because of their armies and their, uh, and their political domination that they rid the seas of pirates and they rid the roads of robbers. And so this kind of demanded a loyalty. You know, we created this wonderful peace. Do you not then at least owe us some obligation? Worship the gods. And, of course, the god, uh, uh, the god became Roma. Uh, and then the god, the god or goddess, I can't remember, Roma, was then pictured in the embodiment of the emperor. So it's like Rome has provided all this peace, and so there became a next step to say, well, Roma is a god for providing this peace, and it became easy to take a next step and say, Roma now exists incarnate in the emperor. And so it's certainly say Caesar is Lord, burn incense to him. And this, is, this was demanded as a sign of loyalty. In fact, there were striking similarities to what the Romans demanded people say about the emperor as to what they were saying about Christ. I mean, say Caesar is Lord? Well, we're not going to do that. And so they were sent to the Colosseum. They were sent to their death. Um, because who is worthy to say that about except our Lord, Christ? Right? And they were demanding that they say all kinds of praise and adoration to the emperor, these weird, immoral uh, rulers. Second, they were also refused to make token sacrifices like the incense burning, like the celebration of Caesar's uh, birthdays and this sort of thing. And 
come on, it's just your civic duty, it's, it's not a big deal, just go ahead and do it, it's what all good citizens do. And they refused to do it. Okay? They were viewed as revolutionaries. What are these people, meeting in secret? Are they planning to overthrow the government? Uh, well, they were meeting in secret to protect their, their lives. Um, they were also viewed as unpatriotic. They refused to serve in the military. Why do you think they refused to serve in the military? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. No. Good guess, but not right. What were the what were the government do, what was the government doing? What was the what was the, Yeah, the the army's going to go out and persecute Christians. Okay, I'm a Christian. I'll sign up for that. Doesn't make any, like if you join the army, you're going to have to go out and kill Christians. Well, I am a Christian. Well, I better not join the army. So they were viewed as unpatriotic because they wouldn't do that, but how could they do that when they do have to go out and arrest their friends and kill them and really kill themselves? Um and they were also just guilt by association. Maybe they never did anything, but they announced themselves as a Christian. Well, oh, you're like that group. It's just the, it's just the claiming of that name made you guilty by association. Then there was the philosophical criticism. I know we're racing, but, uh, but you, you'll, you'll get a sense of all this, the reasons they hated believers. Um, there were the intellectual attackers, which I already mentioned, who said Christianity is just for the stupid or the simple. People like Celsus, I mentioned, Emperor Julian, Pafri. These guys wrote much about the, uh, what they felt about Christians being uh, dumb and unintelligent. They also complained, again, these are philosophical reasons. These are idea reasons, not so much action reasons. Uh, why do Christians embrace immoral people, Right? Do Christians embrace immoral people? Sure they do. If they repent, of course. We don't embrace and condone uh, immorality, but if folks repent, they, that's what Christ did. Christ embraced immoral people. And so it, it's, it's, very, it's very similar to thoughts today that would say, well, you think a person can do all this and do all this and sin, 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 and, and then repent and trust Jesus and be saved, but a person who's a, quote, good person can't? That was a philosophical question even back then. Um, Number four, uh, Bible stories are foolish. I mean, you believe in the virgin birth, you believe in miracles, a God that has emotions. We know from our philosophy that God is unchangeable, that God is immutable, so then how could God have these sort of emotions? An, an incarnate God was inconceivable uh, that God would take on a material body. This was, this was absolutely inconceivable to uh, the culture and last is they thought just because because of its novelty just because it was new you know they 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 fell back on their greek philosophers who were four or five hundred years old already by this time at least their teachings were and that they relied on those wonderful teachings why would we teach something new you're just being superstitious it's just a crutch for you to lean on and christians are still accused of that so because of these reasons Christians were initially persecuted uh, by the Jews, and then uh, for these reasons and more, the Romans took over the persecution in the late 1st century, early 2nd century. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8 says this, I know your works, and I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Even from the very beginning, 
Christianity was a very difficult uh, religion to embrace. Its founder was killed. Its uh, 11 uh, faithful followers of its founder were killed. Uh, Stephen was brutally murdered. Uh, so to join this group was really to be endangered with your own life. In those early days, though, in those early days where the apostles were still alive and the, uh, the early church was just beginning, the Romans were generally friendly to the, uh, to the Christians. Uh, they were at least neutral towards what they called the Jesus movement. That's a funny name because that's still the name today. Um, and so opposition, even as we talked about last week, basically came from the Palestinian Jews. You had, those, you had the Hellenistic Jews and the Palestinian Jews. It's basically those Palestinian Jews and said, you're not, you know, you're not, um, uh, you're not, re you're, you're accepting Christ and we're or Jesus and we're not as the Christ. And so there's going to be this, uh, this tension. For the Jews, Jesus was the greatest heretical teacher that there ever was. And you look at Paul, and he thought he was doing God a favor. He was zealous, Philippians chapter 3 tells us, towards the law. Because those Jews aren't being faithful to the traditions like I am. And they're receiving this heretic, this liar, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to chase these people down and we're going to kill them. And Because if we don't, this is what Jews believed, if we don't, the wrath of God is going to come upon us. This was a Jewish belief throughout all of ancient history. If we're not faithful to God, then he's going to bring his wrath down upon us. And so we have to cleanse our own people who are buying into this other teacher. Uh, and so we're going to... We're going to persecute them. And then the Christians actually ran to the Romans for protection. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. And you, there's a couple places in the Bible where that happens. Paul, in Acts 18 and in Acts 21, is being threatened by Jews. Remember that time in Acts 21, he brings in uh, some Gentile people into the, into, the, uh, into the temple. And they're like, what are you doing? And the Jews actually start a riot, and Paul rushes to Rome for help. He, he asks a Roman soldier for help, and they protect him. So it was, initially it was the Jews. And so there was no question that the Romans knew that early on. It was these Jewish traditionalists versus Jews who had become believers. So the Romans just stayed out of it unless there was a riot or something like I just mentioned. In fact, in Acts 18.2, there's a mention of an emperor named Claudius who expelled Jews from Rome because of all this disorderly conduct. History tells us it was over a man named Crestus, <laughs> which of course we believe is Christ. But the emperor worship became, became the thing. And so because the Jews were monotheistic, they were allowed to have kind of this exemption against worshiping the emperor. But when it was discovered by the Romans that Christianity was no longer just a Jewish sect, then it was like, wait a minute, what, why are we allowing them to have the exemption? So here's how it kind of transitioned towards the end of the first century in like AD 64 when Nero takes over and stuff. The, uh, it's Jew versus Jew. Okay, but then uh, because the Jews, a lot of the Jews are rejecting the gospel, just like uh, just like predicted by Jesus and commissioned by Paul, who started to receive the gospel then? Because Jews rejected it, so Gentiles are accepting it, and really Christianity became a Gentile religion. And so now, now you have more Gentiles that are accepting Christ, and they're not wanting to worship the emperor, so the the Romans are thinking, well, we gave the Jews a pass, but now this religion seems to be far greater than just a, just a Jewish thing. And so then they started to demand that the emperor be worshipped. You sense that transition? Okay. Oh, I had some things here maybe I was going to say. Uh, okay, I've, I've said all these things uh, already. 
Um, let's go on to the persecution under Nero, who was well-liked at first, but then uh, became really a madman. Uh, where are we at in the sheet here? Let me make sure I give you, because going, we're going quickly. Um, this, is, this is something that you'll know from history. On June 18th, the year 64, was the great fire of Rome. And Nero was accused of starting it himself so that he could rebuild Rome to his own liking. I don't believe that that's true. Most, most of the things that I read as far as the Christian history books that I'm reading to kind of help me put together lessons, don't believe that's true either. In fact, they say that Nero was a few miles away when the, when the fire started in Rome and his palace uh, in, at a different place, and he returned to Rome immediately when the fire started. He actually opened up his gardens and opened up some other buildings that he had to allow people to uh, find protection and safety. In fact, most of these things believe that, you know, I know a lot of people think he's playing his harp on a, up on top of a roof building and singing while Rome fell. This is legend and tradition that may or may not be true because Nero, the, one of the reasons he fell out of uh, favor with a lot of the Roman people was that he announced himself to be a poet and artist as well and the poet and artists of Rome didn't like that so he, they thought he burned Rome just so he could sing a poem about it and this would be recorded forever that he wrote this epic song during the burning of Rome. I don't know that I believe all that. I don't think that's necessarily true. Could be. Did you, did you want to back that up or make a statement? No, you. I'm talking to you, Tony. People think it was an oil warehouse. That's what, that's what a couple of books I read. I don't know if it was all necessarily stone buildings. Well, I would think some of it would be. Obviously, if it burned... Right, I mean, I, I don't know the whole makeup of the architecture, but if stuff burned, it had to be burnable. I mean, a fire did happen. There's no question about that. Hmm, okay. Sure, and one... One of, the, one of the aspects of it as well was that Nero was becoming a hated individual already. And so these rumors were very easy to propagate that he's the one that started it. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure we could never, we could never imagine uh, the, the society or the media presenting a false narrative about anything, right? Um, so, so there's no question that this could be easily propagated. And then, oh yeah, he was becoming kind of a lunatic. He probably did do it, and he was becoming very uh, concerned for himself. Obviously, and and you know this part of it is is true. Uh, there were actually many places in Rome that were occupied by Jewish and Christian people that were not burned, just circumstantially. And so Nero got the idea to, that. In order to get the pressure off himself, he had to blame someone. And so he blamed the Christians for burning uh, the city. And they became the scapegoat for it. And so, as we see, they were covered in the skins of wild beasts, uh, torn, that should say, torn to death by dogs, crucified or set ablaze. And you, you remember this, him lighting the streets with Christians on sticks 
uh, lit up in torches. And when Nero did this, he opened up his own gardens for this, where he dressed up in costume as a chariot racer. Uh, so it, Tacitus, who's a historian in those days, is the one who recorded this. And so this is historical record. There's no question that this happened. And what, what it is indicating is the Romans began to see the Christians as different than the Jews. And so persecution began to transition from just Jew on Jew to Roman on Jew. Peter and Paul were killed under Nero's reign before he was deposed in 60, 68 by a Roman rebellion. He killed himself. And then Vespian gained control along with his son Titus. Titus is the one who came in and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, destroyed the, all the cities in the temple. Emperor Domitian came to power after that. And it was he who sentenced John, the disciple, to the island of Patmos. Okay, Now, I wish we had more time for these two guys. We don't, so I'm going to have to go very quick. In the second century, we then s have this transition into persecution of all Christians. Um, and some of the greatest information that we have historically is some documents that have survived from Pliny the Younger. These guys have really strange names. Pliny the Younger, who was a governor of an area called Bithynia, which is near Turkey today. And he wrote to the emperor at the time whose name was Trajan. And Pliny, history would have us believe, was a, I mean, we hate to use this term, but he was a good man who didn't understand why we we're doing this to Christians. Why, why are we doing this? And so he wrote this letter to Trajan saying, what, what are we supposed to do with the believers? Why in the world are we killing these people? Are we doing what's right? And Trajan wrote back, and this became Roman policy. This, I have like a blank here for you. This became Roman policy for the next two to three hundred years. When Trajan wrote back to Pliny, he says, I, I know, but, so here's what we're going to do. We're not going to spend, I guess we could call this the Trajan doctrine, right? They call this, when a leader develops something, called the doctrine. We're not going to spend our resources to chase these people down. But when they are accused we will punish them for not being loyal to Rome. Okay? So in other words, we're not going to spend all kinds of resources and money on chasing these people down, but, but if someone does accuse them of being a Christian, then we will bring them under the full force of Roman power. And so that became really the policy for Rome over the next, really, two to three centuries. Um, Again, Tertullian writes about that, uh, thinking that's ridiculous. He says, this is a confused sentence. He actually wrote this 100 years after Pliny wrote this, so during the 200s A.D., Tertullian, when this policy is still in place, he says, this is a confused sentence. It refuses to seek us out as if we were innocent, but orders that we be punished as if we are guilty. This guy's a pretty, pretty intelligent dude, right? Um, it will pardon us as long as we stay hidden. Many Christians had been brought before this Pliny, and he began learning of their practices, and that's why he didn't think it was necessarily right, because he kind of was impressed with their commitment. Basically, Christians were put to death for being stubborn, because so often they were given the chance, just recant. Just say the words, Caesar is Lord. And they wouldn't. So they were basically killed for being, as they thought, stubborn. Pliny says, Why is it that these Christians gather together before dawn to sing to Christ as a God? 
Isn't that, I think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in those generations doing that under fear of someone accusing them of being a believer. Can you imagine that? They're not going to seek you out. So then, so then you get mad with your neighbor, right? And they find out you're a Christian. Uh, Pliny, we got one over here, right? Can you imagine how, how tense that would be if you ever got in an argument with someone and then they could accuse you, right? They're not going to chase you down, but if you get accused, then they're going to get you. It's a, a terrible time to be living in. And Ignatius was one of these heroes that we need to know about. Ignatius and Polycarp are two of these early, early Christian martyrs whose stories I wish we had more than four minutes to tell. In fact, maybe we'll pick it up next week. We'll see. Festivities were being planned um, to celebrate a Roman military victory. And Ignatius was being brought there. He was the bishop of Antioch. Some people think it was Peter who sent him up. Antioch was that great church in Acts, was it Acts 11? that Barnabas went to check out where the grace of God was upon them and the hand, the hand of God was seen in them and they were doing great things. In fact, Antioch really became the missionary hub for all missionary activity in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas are sent from Antioch. And so they think Bishop, in other words, for Pastor, was the pastor of that church in around the year uh, 100 to 110. Okay? And so he was being dragged to Rome to be killed as part of the celebration. It's unknown whether he was accused uh, by a pagan or whether he was accused by someone in his own fellowship because Ignatius was known as one who was fiercely devoted to right doctrine and it may have been that someone in his own church who was not really a believer got upset with him. Can you imagine the tension that would you'd be living in? You just rub somebody the wrong way and then they're going to report you? On his way there to Rome, Ignatius wrote seven letters that survived. You can still read them. I read them all yesterday. They're incredible. He wrote letters to the Ephesians, to the Magnesians, to the Romans, to the Philadelphians, to the Smyrnians, and he wrote a personal letter to Polycarp, who was 50 years younger than he. But it's the one to the Romans that is incredibly revealing. And I want to read a little bit of it. And, and so we'll have to pick up with Polycarp next week because I, I really want you to hear that Polycarp is insane too. I mean, these guys are worthy of our study and honor. But Ignatius called himself the God-bearer. Um, in, in all of these letters, he says Ignatius or Theophorus, which means the God-bearer. And then a legend grew, and I don't know, this may or may not be true, but legend is sometimes fun to talk about too, that uh, a letter was uh, transposed so that it really meant born of God, so that some people began to believe that Ignatius was the little child that Jesus held on his lap when he said, suffer the little children to come unto me. I mean, that's intriguing. May or may not be true. Jesus did hold some kid on his lap, right? And I imagine that his family would have talked about that for years and years to come. I thought that was interesting. Um, but here's part of the letter. In other words, here, here's the reason he wrote the letter to the Romans, Okay. He, he wrote letters to all these people, and they're all worth reading. You can just Google them, and you can find them instantaneously, the seven letters. But the one to the Romans, they're all just brief, like our letters to the Philippians or Ephesians. They're not very long to read. But he wrote to the Romans because that's where he was going, and he had learned that the church there was developing a plan to try to free him. Because he was so, I mean, this would be like they're, they're dragging off, uh, off uh, Sproul. You know what I mean? It's like this guy is, this guy is revered. He's old. So they, he writes this letter to the Romans because he heard of their plan to free him. And he writes some of this. I put one of the, one of the quotes was at the start of the lesson. This is worth reading, so please bear with, okay? 
I write to the churches and impress on them all that I am willingly, willingly dying for God unless you hinder me. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts through whose instrumentality it will be granted to me to attain to God. And of course, the, the relief of Ignatius is one of lions eating him, which is what happened to him. I am the wheat of God. Let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Rather, entice the wild beasts that they may become my tomb and may leave nothing of my body. <laughs> then I will truly be a disciple of Christ. He says a little bit more. Um, from Syria to Rome, he's coming from Antioch of Syria to Rome, I fight with beasts by land and sea, both night and day. I am bound to ten leopards. And by leopards, he says, I mean a band of soldiers who, even when they receive good benefits, show themselves to be all the worse. So Ignatius was treating these soldiers with kindness and benevolence on their trip, and he said they treat him worse. Just like we just talked about, love your enemies. Um, but I am more instructed, even by their injuries, to act as a disciple of Christ. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me, and I pray that they will be eager to rush upon me, and then I will entice them to devour me speedily. Crazy, right? All the pleasures of the I'm skipping a little bit. All the pleasures of the Oh, let me, let me read this. Because he didn't want them to free him. He wanted to die. Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, dislocations of bones, let cutting off of all members, let shatterings of my whole body, let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me, only let me attain to Jesus Christ. For all the pleasures of the world and all the kingdoms of this earth shall profit me nothing. It is better for me to die on behalf of Jesus Christ than to reign over all the ends of the earth. For what shall a man be profited if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Him I seek who died for us. Him I desire who rose again for our sake. This is the gain which, laid upon, which is laid up for me. Pardon me, brethren. Do not hinder me from living. Do not wish to keep me from the state of death. I desire to belong to God. That is just fantastic. Gives us tremendous insight, doesn't it? To the commitment. In fact, uh, Jerome, hundreds of years later, mentioned the lions that ate Ignatius and Chrysostom, the great preacher, hundreds of years later mentioned the Colosseum as being the place of his death. I'm going to finish with Polycarp. Just let me finish these last two minutes with this guy because then we, then we can move on to something else. And you can, I would suggest you read some stuff on your own. Polycarp is another ancient man. He's, Again, 50 years later, he's the one that received a letter from Ignatius, and 50 years later, he uh, was pastoring in, as a bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was a disciple of John, uh, the apostle. In fact, Polycarp was probably the last man alive to actually see an apostle, and the account that we have of his death is the account of eyewitnesses. Um, there was a man, another old man, who was killed just before him, um, who stood his ground for Christ, and so then the crowd said, bring us Polycarp next. And when it was found that Polycarp was being uh, uh, accused, he hid for several days until he finally realized it was the will of God. He's 86 years old, at least. He's 86 years old. And they brought him to trial, and the judge said to him, all you have to say is down with the atheists, and we'll let you go. And Polycarp said, all right. And he points at everybody in the room. He says, down with these atheists. Some guts there. So the judge is just like pulling his hair out and stuff and he says, uh, he says, uh, I will give you one last chance to curse Christ. Listen to this. 
I have wild animals here, he said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. And again, these are eyewitness accounts of this. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn and do evil. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want, Polycarp says. So the crowd gets mad. They collect, it's just like Stephen. They collect bundles of sticks from shops and baths and they bring the pile ready. They're going to fix him with nails to the stake and he says this, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure this fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. This one thing that he said as well is to reproach Christ and I will set you free. And this is one of his famous statements and you've probably heard this. 86 years I have served him, Polycarp said, and he has done me no wrong. How then will I blaspheme my king and my savior? They say that as the fire burned, it didn't touch him. That it kind of created an arch around him. And so someone had to come up and actually stab him to death and that's how he eventually died. It made me think, as we close, of the ease of our commitment to Christ. There's no informants here today. Beautiful day, tax-free building, no problems. And it made me think of that song, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize or sailed through bloody seas. The commitment of these early Christians should put us to shame for our apathy and our coldness and our lack of commitment to Christ. Father, thank you so much for these historical accounts and for the men and women of faith who've gone before us and have given us such an example. They fit right in with Hebrews chapter 11 of men and women who refused uh, to be approved by the world so that they could be um, true followers of Jesus Christ. Give us, Father, a deep and abiding commitment even as we sing your praises in a moment. Help us to realize that we are coming along after a long line of folks who have been committed to Christ, and we are part of that great throng that will one day be united in heaven, singing your praises. Help us to enjoy just a foretaste of that this morning with the friends who've gathered here in Jesus' name. Amen.